Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton. Volume 3 Chapter 5 Bandit Devil Familiar only with the wave-riding outriggers, Dalgard took his seat in the alien craft with misgivings. And oddly enough, it also bothered him to occupy a post that earlier had served not a non-human such as Sasuri, whom he admired, but a humanoid whom he had been taught from childhood to avoid, if not fear. The skiff was rounded at the bow and stern with very shallow sides, and displayed a tendency to whirl about in the current, until Sasuri, with his instinctive knowledge of watercraft, used one of the queerly shaped paddles tucked away in the bottom to both steer and propel them. They did not strike directly across the river, but allowed the current to carry them in a diagonal path so that they came out on the opposite bank some distance to the west. Sasuri brought them ashore with masterly skill, where a strip of sod angled down to the edge of the water, marking Dalgard decided what had been once a garden. The buildings on this side of the river were not so closely set together. Each standing some two or three stories high was encircled by green, as if this had been a section of private dwellings. They pulled the light boat out of the water, and Sasuri pointed at the open door of the nearest house. In there. Dalgard agreed it might be well to hide the craft against their return, although as yet they had found no physical evidence other than the dead hoppers that they might not be alone in the city. He wanted a means of escape ready if such a flight would be necessary. In the meantime, there was the snake devil to track, and that wily creature, if it had swum the river, might be lurking at present in the next silent street, or miles away. Sasuri, spear ready, was trotting along the paved lane, his head up as he thought quested for any hint of life about them. Dalgard tried to follow that lead, but he knew that it would be Sasuri's stronger power that would warn them first. They cast east from where they had landed, studying the soil of each garden spot, hunting for the unmistakable spore of the giant reptile, and within a matter of minutes they found it, the mud still moist as Dalgard proved with an exploring fingertip. At the same time, Sasuri twirled his spear significantly. Before them, the lane ran on between two walls without any breaks. Dalgard uncased his bow and strung it. From his quiver, he chose one of the powerful arrows, the points of which were kept capped until use. A snake devil with its nervous system controlled not from the tiny brainless head but from a series of auxiliary brains at points along its powerful spine could and would go on fighting even after that head was shorn away as the first colonists had discovered when they depended on the deadly ray guns fatal to any Terran life. But the poison-tipped arrow Dalgard now handled with confidence in its complete efficiency, paralyzed within moments and killed in a quarter hour one of the scaled monstrosities. Lair. Dalgard did not need that warning thought from his companion. There was no mistaking that sickly sweet stench born of decaying animal matter that was the betrayal of Fluvia of Mistake Devil's Lair. He turned to the right-hand wall and with a running leap reached its broad top. The lane curved to end in an archway cut through another wall that was higher than Dalgard's head even when he stood on his present elevation. But bands of ornamental patterning ran along the taller barrier, and he was certain it could be climbed. 
He lowered a hand to Sasori and hoisted the merman up to join him. But Sasori stood for a long moment looking ahead, and Dalgard knew that the merman was disturbed, that the wall before them had some terrifying meaning for the native Astron. So vivid was the impression of what could only be termed terror that Dalgard dared to ask the question, What is it? The merman's yellow eyes turned from the wall to his companion. Behind his hatred of this place, there was another emotion that Dalgard could not read. This is the place of sorrow, the place of separation. But they paid. Oh, how they paid after that day when the fire fell from the sky. His scaled and taloned feet moved in a little shuffling war dance, and his spear spun and quivered in the sunlight as Dalgard had seen the spears of the mer-warriors move in mock combats of their unexplained, and to his kind, unexplainable rituals. Then did our spears drink, and knives eat. Sasuri's fingers brushed the hilt of the wicked blade, swinging from his belt. Then did the people make separations and sorrows for them, and it was accomplished that we went forth into the sea to be no longer bound but free. And they went down into the darkness and were no more. In Dalgard's head, the chant of his friend skirled up in a paean of exultation. Sasori shook his spear at the wall. No more the beast and the death. His thoughts swelled, a shout of victory. For where are they who sat and watched many deaths? They are gone, as the wave smashes itself upon the coast rocks and is no more. But the people are free, and never more shall those others put bonds upon them. Therefore do I say, this is a place of nothing, where evil has turned in upon itself and come to nothing, just as those others will come to nothing, since in the end their own evil will eat them up. He strode forward along the wall until he came to the barrier, seemingly oblivious of the carrion reek that told of a snake devil's den somewhere about, and he raised his arm high, bringing the point of his spear gratingly along the carved surface. Nor did it seem to Dalgard a futile gesture, for Sasuri lived and breathed, stood free and armed in the city of his enemies. And that city was dead. Together they climbed the barrier, and then Dalgard discovered that it was the rim of an arena that must have seated close to a thousand in the days of its use. It was a perfect oval in shape, with tiers of seats now forming a staircase down to the center, where there was a section ringed about by a series of archways. A high stone grill walled this portion away from the seats as if to protect the spectators from what might enter through those portals. Dalgard noted all this only in passing, for the arena was occupied, very much occupied, and he knew the occupiers only too well. Three full-grown snake devils were stretched at pulpy ease, their filled bellies round, obscene, their long necks crowned with their tiny heads flat on the sand as they had napped. A pair of half-grown monsters not yet past the six-foot stage, toward some indescribable remnants of their elders feasting, hissing at each other, and aiming vicious blows whenever they came within possible fighting distance. Three more, not long out of their mother's pouches, 
scrabbled in the earth about the sleeping adults. A good catch! Talgard signaled Sasori, and the merman nodded. They climbed down from seat to seat. This could not rightfully be termed hunting, when the quarry might be picked off so easily without risk to the archer. But as Dalgard notched his first arrow, he sighted something so surprising he did not let the poison dart fly. The nearest sleeping reptile, which he had selected as his mark, stretched lazily without raising its head or opening its small eyes, and the sunlight caught on a glistening band about its short foreleg, just beneath the joint of the taloned paw hands. No natural scales could reflect the light with such a brilliant glare. There was only one thing it could be. Metal. A metal bracelet around the tearing arm of a snake devil? Dalgard looked at the other two sleepers. One was lying on its belly with his forearms gathered under it so he could not see if it also was equipped. But the other, yes, it was banded also. Sasori stood at the grill, one hand on its stone divisions. His surprise equaled Dalgard's. It was not in his experience either that the untamed snake devils, regarded by merman and human alike as so dangerous as to be killed on sight, could be banded as if they were personal pets. For a moment or two, a wild idea crossed Dalgard's mind. How long was the natural lifespan of a snake devil? Until the coming of the colonists, they had been the undisputed rulers of the deserted continent, stupid as they were, simply because of their strength and ferocity. A 12-foot scaled armored monster that could tear apart a duocorn with ease might not be successfully vanquished by any fauna of Astra. And since the monsters did not venture into the sea, contact between them and the mermen had been limited to casual encounters at rare intervals. So how long did a snake devil live? Were these creatures sprawled here in sleep, ones that had known the domination of those others, though the fall of the master race of Astra must have occurred generations, perhaps hundreds of years in the past? No. Sasuri's denial cut through that. The smaller one is not yet full grown. It lacks the second neck ring, and yet it is also banded. The merman was right. That unpleasant waddle of armored flesh that necklaced the serpent throat of the devil that Dalgard had picked as his target was thin, not the thick roll of fat such as distinguished his two companions. It was not fully adult, yet the band was plain to see on the foreleg now stretched to its full length in the sun. Dalgard did not want to think about what might be the explanation for that then. Sasuri shrugged. It is plain. These are not wild roamers. They are here for a purpose. And that purpose. Suddenly his arm shot out so that his fingers protruded through the slits in the stone grill. See? Dalgard had already seen, and in seeing he knew hot and terrible anger. Out of the filthy mess that the snake devils wallowed in, something had rolled, perhaps thrown about in play by the unspeakable offspring. A skull, dried scraps of fur and flesh still clinging to it. At least one merman had fallen prey to the nightmares who ruled the arena. Sasuri hissed, and the red rage in his mind was plain to Dalgard. Once more, they deal death here. 
His eyes went from the skull to the monsters. Kill! The command was imperative and sharp. Dalgard had qualified as a master bowman before he had first gone roving, and the killing of snake devils was a task that had been set every colonist since their first brush with the creatures. He snapped the cap off the glass splinter point designed to pin and then break off in the hide so that any clawing foot the torn arrow could not rid the victim of the poisonous head. The archer's mark was under the throat where the scales were soft. There was a chance of piercing the skin with the first shot. Growls of the two feeding youngsters covered the snap of the bow cord as Dalgard shot. And he did not miss. The brilliant scarlet feather of the arrow quivered in the baggy roll of flesh. With a scream that tore at the human's eardrums, the snake devil reared its hind feet. It made a tearing motion with the banded forearm that scraped across the back of one of its companions, and then it fell back to the blood-stained sand, limp, a greenish foam drooling from its fangs. As the monster that the dead devil had raked roused, Dalgard had his chance for another good mark, and the second scarlet shaft sped straight to its target. But the third creature that had been sleeping belly down in the sand presented only its armored back, a hopeless surface for an arrow to pierce. It had opened its eyes and was watching the now motionless bodies of its fellows, but it showed no disposition to move. It was almost as if it somehow understood that as long as it remained in its present position it was safe. The small ones! Dalgard needed no prompting. He picked off easily enough the two half-grown ones. The infants were another problem. Far less sluggish than their huge elders, they sensed that they were in danger and fled. One took refuge in the pouch of its now-dead parent, and the others moved so fast that Dalgard found them difficult targets. He killed one that had almost reached an archway, and at length nicked the second in the foot, knowing that while the poison would be slower in acting, it would be sure. Through all of this, the third adult devil continued to lie motionless, only its wicked eyes giving any indication that it was even alive. Dalgard watched it impatiently. Unless it would move, allow him a chance to aim at the soft underparts, there was little chance of killing it. What followed startled both hunters, versed as they were in the usual mechanics of killing snake devils. It had been an accepted premise through the years since the colonists had known of the monsters, that the creatures were relatively brainless, mere machines that fought and ate and killed, incapable of any intelligent reasoning, and therefore only dangerous when one was surprised by them or when the hunter was forced to face them inadequately armed. This snake devil was different, as it became increasingly plain to the two behind the grill. It had remained safe during the slaughter of its companions because it had not moved, almost as if it had wit enough not to move. And now, when it did change position, its maneuvers, simple as they were, underlined the fact that this one creature appeared to have thought out a solution to its situation, as rational a solution as Dalgard might have produced, had it been his problem. Still keeping its soft underparts covered, it edged about in the sand until its back, with the impenetrable armor plates, was facing the grill behind which the hunter stood. Retracting its neck between its shoulders and hunching its powerful back limbs under it, it rushed from that point of danger 
straight for one of the archways. Dalgard sent an arrow after it, only to see the shaft scrape along the heavy scales and bounce to the sand. Then the snake devil was gone. Bandit. The word reached Dalgard. Sasori had been cool enough to note that, while the human hunter had been only bewildered by the untypical actions of his quarry. It must be intelligent. The scout's statement was more than half protest. Where they are concerned, one may expect many evil wonders. We've got to get that devil. Dalgard was determined on that, though to run down through this maze of deserted city, an enraged snake devil, above all a snake devil that appeared to have some reasoning power, was not a prospect to arouse any emotion except grim devotion to duty. It goes for help. Dalgard, startled, stared at his companion. Sasori was still by the grill, watching that archway through which the devil had disappeared. What kind of help? For a moment, Dalgard pictured the monster returning at the head of a regiment of its kind, able to tear out this grill and get at their soft-fleshed enemies behind it. Safety. Protection, Sasori told him. And I think that the place to which it now flees is one that we should know. The sun had not clouded. It still streamed down in the torrid heat of early afternoon, warm on their heads and shoulders. Yet, Dalgard felt as chill as if some autumn wind had laid its lash across the small of his back. They are not here, but they have been, and it is possible that they return. The devil goes to where it expects to find them. Sasuri was already on his way, running about the arena's curve to reach the point above the archway through which the snake devil had raced. Dalgard padded after him, bow in hand. He trusted Sasuri implicitly when it came to tracking. If the merman said that the snake devil had a definite goal in view, he was right. But the scout was still a little bemused by a monster who was able to have any goal except the hunting and devouring of meat. Either the one who fled was a freak among its kind, or there were several possibilities which could answer that or, and none of them were very pleasant to consider. They reached the section above the archway and climbed the tiers of seat benches to the top of the wall, only to see no exit below them. In fact, there was nothing but a wide sweep of crushed brown tangle that had once been vegetation. It was apparent there was no door below. Sasori sped down again. He climbed the grill and was on his way to the sand when Dalgard caught up with him. Together they ventured into the underground passage which the snake devil had chosen. The stench of the lair was thick about them. Dalgard coughed, sickened by the foul odor. He was reluctant to advance. But to his growing relief, he discovered that it was not entirely dark. Set in the roof at intervals were plates that gave out a violet light, making a dim twilight that was better than total darkness. It was a straight passage without any turns or openings, but that horrible odor was constant, and Dalgard began to think that they might be running head-on into another lair, perhaps one as well populated as the one they had just left behind them, it was against nature for the snake devils he had known to lair under cover. They preferred narrow, rocky places where they could bask in the sun. But the devil that they now pursued was no ordinary one. Sasori reassured him. There is no lair. 
only the smell because they have come this way for many, many years. The passage opened into a wide room, and here the violet light was stronger, bright enough to make plain the fact that alcoves opened off it, each and every one with a barred grill for a door. There was no mistaking that once this had been a prison of sorts. Sasori did no exploring, but crossed the room at his shuffling trot that Dalgard matched. The way leaning out on the opposite side slanted up, and he judged it might bring them out at ground level. The, the devil, devil waits, Sasori warned, because it fears. It, it will turn on us when we come. come. Be ready. They were at another door, and before them was a long corridor with tall windows opening near the ceiling that gave admittance to the sunlight. After the gloom of the tunnel, Dalgard blinked, but he was aware of movement at the far end, just as he heard the hissing scream of the monster they trailed. Chapter 6 Treasure Hunt Rafe, squatting on a small padded platform raised some six inches from the floor, tried to study the inhabitants of the room without staring offensively. At the first glance, in spite of their strange clothing and their odd habit of painting their faces with weird designs, the city people might have been of his own species. Until one saw their two slender hands with three equal-length fingers and a thumb, or caught a glimpse under the elaborate head coverings of the stiff, spiky substance that served them for hair. At least they did not appear to be antagonistic. When they had reached the rooftop where the Terrans had landed their flitter, they had come with empty hands, making gestures of goodwill and welcome, and they had had no difficulty in persuading at least three of the exploring party to accompany them to their own quarters, though Rafe had been separated from the flyer only by the direct order of Captain Hobart, an order he still resented and wanted to disobey. The Terrans had been offered refreshment, food and drink, but knowing the first rule of stellar exploration they had refused, which did not mean that their hosts must abstain. In fact, Rafe thought, watching the aliens about him, they ate as if such a feast were novel. His two neighbors had quickly divided his portion between them and made it disappear as fast, if not faster, than their own small servings. At the other end of the room, Lablet and Hobart were trying to communicate with the nobles about them, while Sariki, a small palm recorder in his hand, was making a recording of the proceedings. Rafe glanced from one of his neighbors to the other. The one on his right had chosen to wear a sight-torturing shade of crimson, and the material was wound in strips about his body, as if he were engulfed in an endless bandage. Only his fluttering hands, his three-toed feet, and his head were free of the supple rolls. Having selected red for his clothing, he had picked a brilliant yellow paint for his facial makeup, and it was difficult for the uninitiated to trace what must have been his normal features under that thick coating of stuff that fashioned a mask-like strip across his eyes and a series of circles outlining his mouth, circles which almost completely covered his beardless cheeks. More twists of woven fabric, opalescent and changing color, as his head moved, made a turban for his head. Most of the aliens about the room wore some variation of the same bandaged dress, face paint, and turban. An exception, one of the three such, was a feaster on Rafe's left. His face paint was confined to a conservative set of bars on each cheek, 
those a stark black and white. His sinewy arms were bare to the shoulder, and he wore a shell of some metallic substance as a breast and backplate, not unlike the very ancient body armor of Rafe's own world. The rest of his body was covered by the bandage strips, but they were of a dead black, which because of the natural thinness of his limbs gave him a rather unpleasant resemblance to a spider. Various sheaths and pockets hung from a belt pulled tight about his wasp middle, and a helmet of metal covered his head. Was he a soldier? Rafe was sure that his guess was correct. The officer, if officer he was, caught Rafe's gaze. His small round mouth gaped, and then his hands, with a few quick movements that Rafe followed fascinated, pantomimed a flyer in the air. With those talking fingers, he was able to make plain a question. Was Rafe the pilot of the flitter? The pilot nodded, and then he pointed to the officer and forced as inquiring an expression as he could command. The answer was sketched quickly and readably. The alien, too, was either a pilot or had some authority over flyers. For the first time since they had entered this building, Rafe knew a slight degree of relaxation. The too smooth skin of the alien was a darkish yellow. His painted face was a mask to frighten any sensible Terran child. His general appearance was not attractive. But he was a flyer, and he wanted to talk shop as well as they could with no common speech. Since the scarlet-wound nobleman on Rafe's right was completely engrossed in the feast, pursuing a few scraps avidly about the dish, the Terran gave all his attention to the officer. Twittering words poured in a stream from the warrior's lips. Rafe shook his head regretfully, and the other jerked his shoulders in almost human impatience. Somehow that heartened Rafe. With many guesses to cover gaps, probably more than half of which were wrong, Rafe gathered that the officer was one of a very few who still retained the almost forgotten knowledge of how to pilot the remaining airworthy craft left in this crumbling city. On their way to the building with the curved roof, Rafe had noticed the evidence that the inhabitants of this metropolis could not be reckoned as more than a handful, and that most of these now lived either within the central building or close to it. They were a pitiful collection of survivors who lingered on the ruins of their past greatness. Yet he was impressed now by no feeling that the officer, eagerly trying to make contact, was a degenerate member of a dying race. In fact, as Rafe glanced at the aliens about the room, he was conscious of an alertness, of a suppressed energy that suggested a young and vigorous people. The officer was now urging him to go someplace, and Rafe, his dislike for being in the heart of the stranger's territory once more aroused, was about to shake his head in a firm negative when a second idea stopped him. He had resisted separation from the flitter, Perhaps he could persuade the alien, under the excuse of inspecting a strange machine, to take him back to the flyer. Once there, he would stay. He did not know what Captain Hobart and Lablet thought they could accomplish here, but as for himself, Rafe was sure that he was not going to feel easy again until he was across those northern mountains and coming in for a landing close to the RS-10. It was as if the alien officer had read his thoughts, for the warrior uncrossed his black legs and got nimbly to his feet with a lithe movement that Rafe, cramped by sitting in the unfamiliar posture, could not emulate. No one appeared to notice their withdrawal, 
and when Rafe hesitated, trying to catch Hobart's eye and make some explanation, the alien touched his arm lightly and motioned toward one of the curtained doorways. Conscious that he could not withdraw from the venture now, Rafe reluctantly went out. They were in a hall where bold bands of color interwoven patterns impossible for Terran eyes to study. Rafe lowered his gaze hurriedly to the gray floor under his boots. He had discovered early that to try to trace any thread of that wild splashing did weird things to his eyesight and awakened inside of him a sick panic. His space boots with the metal magnetic plates set in the soles clicked loudly on the pavement where his companion's bare feet made no whisper of sound. The hall gave upon a ramp leading down, and Rafe recognized this. His confidence arose. They were on their way out of the building. Here the murals were missing so he could look about him for reference points. He was sure that the banquet hall was some ten stories above street level, but they did not go down ten ramps now. At the foot of the third, the officer turned abruptly to the left, beckoning Rafe along. When the Terran remained stubbornly where he was, pointing in the direction that to him meant a return to the flitter, the other made gestures describing an aircraft in flight. His own, probably. Rafe sighed. He could see no way out unless he cut and ran. And long before he reached the street from this warren, they could pick him up. Also, in spite of all the precautions he had taken to memorize their way here, he was not so sure he could find his path back to the flyer, even if he were free to go. Giving in, he went after the officer. Their way led out onto one of the spiderweb bridges, the tide building and tower into the complicated web that was the city. Rafe, as a pilot of a flitter, had always believed that he had no fear of heights, but he discovered that to coast above the ground in a flyer was far different than the hurry at the pace his companion now set across one of these narrow bridges suspended high above the street. And he was sure that the surface under them vibrated as if the slightest extra poundage was separated from its supports and send it and them crashing down. Luckily, the distance they had to cover was relatively short, but Rafe swallowed a sigh of relief as they reached the door at the other end. They were now in a tower that, unluckily, proved to be only a way station before another swing out over empty space on a span that sloped down. Rafe clutched at the guide rail, the presence of which suggested that not all the users of this road were as nonchalant as the officer who tripped lightly ahead. This must explain the other's bare feet. On such paths, they were infinitely safer than his own boots. The downward-sloping bridge brought them to a square building that somehow had an inhabited look that those crowding around it lacked. Rafe gained its door to become aware of a hum. There was a vibration in the wall he touched to steady himself, hinting at the drive of motors, the throb of machinery inside the structure. But within, the officer passed along a corridor to a ramp that brought them out after what was for Rafe a steep climb upon the roof. Here was not one of the tongue-shaped craft such as had first met them in the city, but a gleaming globe. The officer stopped, his eyes moving from the Terran to the machine, as if inviting Rafe to share in his own pride. To the pilot's mind, it bore little resemblance to any form of aircraft, past or present, with which he had had experience in his own world but he did not doubt that it was the present acme of alien construction, and he was eager to see it perform. 
He followed the officer through a hatch at the bottom of the globe, only to be confronted by a ladder he thought at first he could not climb, for the steps were merely toeholds made to accommodate the long, bare feet of the crew. By snapping on the magnetic power of his space boots, Rafe was able to get up, although at a far slower speed than his guide. They passed several levels of cabins before coming out in what was clearly the control cabin of the craft. To Rafe, the bank of unfamiliar levers and buttons had no meaning, but he paid strict attention to the gestures of his companion. This was not a spaceship, he gathered, and he doubted whether the aliens had ever lifted from their own planet to their neighbors in the solar system. But it was a long-range ship with greater cruising power than the other flyer he had seen, and it was being readied now for a voyage of some length. The Terran pilot squatted down on the small stool before the controls. Before him, a visiplate provided a clear view of the sky without and the gathering clouds of evening. Rafe shifted uncomfortably. That signal of the passing of time triggered his impatience to be away, back to the RS-10. He did not want to spend the night in this city. Somehow, he had to get the officer to take him back to the flitter. To be there would be better than shut up in one of the alien dwellings. Meanwhile, he studied the scene on the visiplate, trying to find the roof on which they had left the flitter, but there was no point he was able to recognize. Rafe turned to the officer and tried to make clear the idea of returning to his own ship. Either he was not as clever at the sign language as the other, or the alien simply did not wish to understand. When they left the cabin control, it was only to make an inspection tour of the other parts of the globe, including the space that held the motors of the craft and which, at another time, would have kept Rafe fascinated for hours. In the end, the Terran broke away and climbed down the thread of ladder to stand on the roof under the twilight sky. Slowly, he walked about the broad expanse of the platform, attempting to pick out some landmark. The central building of the city loomed high, and there were any number of towers about it, but which was the one that guarded the roof where the flitter rested? Rafe's determination to get back to his ship was a driving force. The alien officer had watched him, and now a three-fingered hand was laid on Rafe's sleeve while its owner looked into Rafe's face and mouthed a trilling question. Without much hope, the pilot sketched the set of gestures he had used before, and he was surprised when the other led the way down into the building. This time, they did not go back to the bridge that had brought them across the canyons of streets, but kept on down ramps within the building. There was a hum of activity in the place, Aliens, all in tight black wrappings and burnished metal breastplates, their faces barred with black and white paint, went on errands through the halls or labored at tasks that Rafe could not understand. It now seemed as if his guide was eager to get him away. It was when they reached the street level that the officer did pause by one door, beckoning Rafe imperiously to join him. The Terran obeyed reluctantly and was almost sick. He was staring down at a dead, a very dead body. By the stained rags that still clung to it, it was one of the aliens, a noble, not one of the black-clad warriors. The gaping wounds that had almost torn the unfortunate apart were like nothing that Rafe had ever seen. With a guttural sound that expressed his feelings as well as any words, the officer picked up from the floor a broken spear the barbed head of which was dyed the same reddish-yellow as the blood still seeping from the torn body. 
swinging the weapon so close to Rafe that the Terran was forced to retreat a step or two to escape contact with the grisly relic, the officer burst into an impassioned speech. Then he went back to the gestures which were easier for the spaceman to understand. This was the work of a deadly enemy, Rafe gathered, and such a fate awaited any of them who ventured beyond the certain bounds of safety. Unless this enemy was destroyed, the city and life itself was no longer theirs. Seeing those savage wounds that suggested that an insane fury had driven the attacker, Rafe could believe it. But surely a primitive spear was no equal to the weapons his guide could command. When he tried to suggest that, the other shook his head as if despairing of making plain his real message, and again beckoned Rafe to come with him. They were out on the littered street, heading away from the central building where the rest of the Terran party must still be, and Rafe, seeing the lengthening shadows, the pools of dust gathering, and remembering that spear, could not resist glancing back over his shoulder now and then. He wondered if the metallic click of his boot soles on the pavement might not draw attention to them, attention they would not care to meet. His hand was on his stun gun, but the officer gave no sign of being worried. He walked along with the assurance of one who has nothing to fear. Then Rafe caught sight of a patch of color he had seen before and relaxed. They were on their way back to the flitter. He had come down this very street, and he did not mind the long climb back, ramp by steep ramp, that brought him out at last beside the flyer. His relief was so great that he put his hand to draw it along the sleek side of the craft, as he might have caressed a well-loved pet. Kirby! At Hobart's bark, he stiffened. Yes, sir. We camp here tonight. Have to make some plans. Yes, sir. He agreed with that. To attempt passage of the mountains in the dark was a suicide mission, which he would have refused. On the other hand, to his mind, they would sleep more soundly if they were out of the city. He speculated whether he dared suggest that they use the few remaining moments of twilight to head into the open and establish a camp somewhere in the countryside. The alien officer made some comment in his slurred speech and faded away into the shadows. Rafe saw that the others were already dragging out their blanket rolls and spreading them in the shelter of the flitter, while Sariki, busying himself at the calm, sending back a message to the RS-10. It should not be too difficult to establish a common speech form, Lablet was saying as Rafe climbed into the flitter to tug loose his own roll. Color and pitch both seem to carry meaning to them, but the basic pattern is there to study, and with the scanner to sort out those record strips. Did you adjust them, Soriki? They're all ready for you to push the button. If the scanner can read them, it will. I got all that speech the chief or king or whatever he was made just before we left. Good, very good. In the light of the portable lamp by Sariki's comm, Lablet settled down, plugged the scanner tubes to his eyes, absently accepting a ration bar the captain handed him to chew on while he listened to the playback of the record the comm tech had made that afternoon. Hobart turned to Rafe. You went off with that officer. What did he have to show you? The pilot described the globe and the body he had been shown, and then added what he had deduced from the sketchy explanations he had been given. The captain nodded. Yes, they have aircraft. They've been using them, too. But I think there's only one of the big ones. They're fighting a war, all right. We didn't see the whole colony, but I'll wager that there are only a handful of them left. 
They're holed up here, and they need help, or the barbarians will finish them off. They talked a lot about that. Lablap pulled the earplugs from his ears. In the lamplight, there was an excited expression on his face. You are entirely right, Captain. They were offering us a bargain there at the last. They are offering us the accumulated scientific knowledge of this world. What? Hobart sounded bewildered. Over there. Lablet made a sweep with his arm that might indicate any point to the east. There is a storehouse of the original learning of their race. It's in the heart of the enemy country. But the enemy as yet do not know of it. They have made two trips over to bring back material, and their ship can only go once more. They offer us an equal share if we'll make the next trip in their company and help them clean out the storage place. Hobart's answer was a whistle. There was an avid hunger on Lablet's lean face. No more potent a bribe could have been devised to entice him. But Rafe, remembering the spear-torn body, wondered. In the heart of the enemy country, he repeated to himself. Lablet added another piece of information. After all, the enemy they face is only dangerous because of superior numbers. And they are only animals. Animals do not carry spears, Rafe protested. Experimental animals that escaped during a worldwide war generations ago, reported the other. It seems the species has evolved to a semi-intelligent level. I must see them. Hobart, however, was not to be hurried. We'll think it over, he decided. This needs a little time for consideration. <laughs>